Good morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 7 will be our text. We'll also be in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 8 to 15. To follow along as I read God's Word. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Let's pray. Father, help us today to see your word clearly, and would you, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Help us to see the idols of our hearts clearly. Help us to see the landscape of our culture clearly, and to know how we need to think as Jesus-centered biblical Christians. Lord, what an opportunity that's in front of us at a, a national and global scale to shine the bright light of the gospel into our land if we will but understand the importance and the power of what is in this text. So, Lord, would you help us today? Help me to get this right. Help our people to understand my heart and the meaning of this text so that those two things could combine in great spiritual lessons and that you could help us grow into what it means to be a mature follower of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sunday after Easter, we will begin our new study on the book of Matthew. Before that series starts, and before Palm Sunday and Easter, I want to take the next three weeks and talk to you about two very important and unique subjects. Two subjects that present some unusual challenges for us today, and also that present some unique opportunities The challenge and the opportunities are captured in two words. It's the word recession and the word growth. Let me explain. Today we're talking about what it means to reveal Christ in a recession. And and I want to help us think biblically and carefully about the culture in which we presently live. And and how do you respond as a biblical Christian in the midst of all the things that we're hearing? The second thing is that as a church, we've experienced a 25% increase in attendance from a year ago. And I don't know if you've found it, but it's increasingly more difficult to find a seat. Um, Our 11 o'clock service is nearly as full as this one. Our worship to our overflow venue is um, about 100, 150 people a week. Our 8 o'clock service is growing, and it's becoming more lively. It's just really exciting. It's... (laughs) And, and that service, frankly, 8 o'clock service needs to grow uh, because that's about the only spot that we've got room. And if you remember, in our Vision Sunday in November, I, I shared with you that our elders were committed in 2009 to talking about our growth strategy. 
What are we going to do to shepherd the opportunities that we have in front of us and, and realize that if you're coming here for the first time, this is an intimidating place to come to. I ran into a couple Tuesday night. Um, th- their first Sunday here, they said we were overwhelmed by the love of the people and by the competitiveness of the seating. <laughs> they said we've never been in an environment where people were like, come on, pal, get out of your seat. You know, I mean, they, they, they want, and they said, so clearly something's going on here, but it was, it's challenging. And then I also heard of a couple who, um, who checked their child into the nursery, came to the 9.30 service, couldn't find a seat, despite all that ushers are trying to do. They're doing a great job. So they went to Overflow, couldn't find a seat there, went back to the nursery, checked their kid out of nursery, and said, we got to go home. And that kind of stuff just kind of bugs me when that happens. I, I see opportunities that, that we need to capitalize on, and yet what are we going to do as a, as a church ministry? So on March 22nd and March 29th, we're going to talk about growth, governance, and the, glo- and the glory of God. We're talking about two things. The first week, we're going to talk about some governance things. So whenever a church grows, it experiences some unique challenges, even as to, to its internal structure, how it's governed, and, and what does it mean for that church to be led, and what is the style of leadership that's going to help move us forward. And so on, uh, on March 22nd, we're going to talk about that. And you'll notice that on March 29th, we have a congregational meeting. We're going to vote on the 29th about the thing that I'm going to present on the 22nd, which essentially is this. There's, there's no capital campaign, just relax. There's, there's no building plans, just don't freak out. Um, what we are going to vote on, though, is this. We need to more clearly identify who are the pastors at College Park Church, what are their roles and their titles. One of the things that we're trying to help us as we move forward is so that we all know who are the pastors at College Park Church. Some folks are called directors, others are called pastors, and every time we bring somebody new in, there's questions about, now, how, how do we do this? So we're going to clean it up once and for all. That's the only thing we're going to vote on. It's going to be really fun because you're going to see, oh, here's what these folks do. Here's their primary area of responsibilities. And it also will help more clearly identify what your role is, what our role is, and how we're moving together. So that's the only thing we're going to vote on in the congregational meeting. Along with that, there'll be some information things about um, some constitutional things that we're talking about in the future and also just kind of where we're going the next uh, 30, 60, and 90 days. Then on March 29th, we're going to specifically talk about our growth strategy. And that is that rather than talking about a building or a capital campaign or anything like that, um, I presented to our elders six governing values for growth. Meaning, as we look towards the future, what are the values that need to govern us more the why and the how before the what? To really help us think through, so what do we do with the fact that we've got 25% growth, God clearly is blessing us, at the same time there's something unique about College Park Church, and how do we move forward without messing it up? That's the question. And so that's what we're going to wrestle with together on March uh, 29. And so we want you to be engaged in the next three weeks because they're, they're really important for the season of church ministry that we're in. I want you to know that there's no agenda here. Some of you are maybe a little suspicious. You're like, oh, it's a, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a subversive end run to a, a building or a capital. Please, there's no agenda here. There's no need in our, our financial profile as a church. It's not because the budget is suffering that we're talking about these things. The church is doing very well uh, financially. Essentially, the reason why we're talking about this is that as a church, we have a challenge related to 25% growth. And as a country and as a people, we have a challenge. It's called recession. And God has put us in a moment of history where we have this growth and this recession, and we've got to think through how do we respond biblically to these two things. So that's what we're going to talk about. My title for today's sermon is Revealing Christ in a Recession. And the aim is to help us think biblically about the difficult days that we're in. 
I, what I want you to do is I want you to, um, to see the, the unique opportunity that's right in front of you. I, I want you to see that a recession, a recession shows us what we really value and it presents a moment in history, in time, to display the worth of Christ. A recession shows us what we really value. And it is an opportunity for us in the midst of that season to say, I treasure Christ. So the question is, how do we do that? Well, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is our text today, particularly chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Look at the text. The question is, how do we reveal Christ in a recession? Verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 8 says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So, how do we reveal Christ in a recession? Two key words, joyful generosity. Say that with me. Joyful generosity. Yes, this is a message about giving. It is. And the reason is that this text tells me that in the midst of a season of downturn, of poverty, there was something that happened in the Macedonian church that was beautiful, it was Christ-centered, it was powerful, and it related to joyful generosity. And the end product of what I want to call you today is this. In the midst of a downturn of, of of the economic situation, in the midst of a season when people are afraid and they're fearful, understandably, when they're worried, this is a time for believers to step up and say, Jesus is my treasure, I seek first the kingdom of God, I will be filled with joy and I will be generous and in the midst of doing that, the world takes notice, oh, so I guess this world isn't your treasure I guess you're not living just for here it it presents an unprecedented opportunity for the beauty of the gospel to be declared what's going on that Paul writes this well, he's writing to the church at Corinth, that's where we pick it up And he's encouraging them to give to an offering. It takes two chapters to talk with them about giving. So if you're a little uncomfortable about churches talking about giving, I just need to tell you that the Bible has all sorts of things to say about money. And please, this is not about the church budget. This isn't. If you walk away with that, you've missed the point. You've missed my heart. Sometimes pastors don't talk about giving because they're afraid that you're going to make assumptions about things. And honestly, we just have to talk about this, even if you do make those assumptions. Because they wouldn't be right. And secondly, the Bible's pretty clear. And what's happening is that Paul is telling the Corinthian church about this offering that he's going to take for the Jerusalem saints. You see, they were, the Jerusalem saints, these Jewish believers were in a hard place. Some sort of famine had come and, and they were struggling financially. So Paul, as he went around to all the churches, took up an offering and was going to give it to the benevolent needs of the church in Jerusalem. So he's writing to the Corinthians about preparing their gifts so that when he comes, he could take that gift with him and go to Jerusalem. And he tells them about the Macedonians, another church group, who had given, and this church group was really poor, and they gave unbelievably joyfully and unbelievably generously. And so what Paul does is he's using the example of the Macedonians to encourage the Corinthians to give. That's what's happening here. And his point is this. That joyful generosity reveals Christ in stunning ways, especially in a recession. You see, joy and generosity are the opposite of how most people respond. 
I mean, are people happy at your office? (laughs) What happens in the midst of seasons of economic downturn, people become afraid and they begin to hoard. Remember Y2K? (laughs) Remember, I had like a 50-pound bag of rice in my basement. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, I think, hey, if we're going to live, we'll live on rice for like three years. It was like a 50-pound bag. The problem is I don't know what to do with it after Y2K came and went. I was like, what do we do with this thing? So I threw it away. We had bottles of water, canned goods. We lived on mac and cheese and rice for three years. We had it all set. But that, that was a weird season, wasn't it? Because it was you were afraid and hoarding and fear is what happens. And instead, Paul calls people to joy and generosity. It, it could display Christ in fresh and unbelievably important ways. So here's what happens in a recession. What happens in a recession is it has a purifying effect and it causes us to take a careful look at ourselves and what we really value. And for some of us, that's happened in stark ways. Um, A recession clarifies what we really love. It, It shows if we take too much joy in money and it reminds us what is really important. Get your year-end statement from your 401k, your 403b, and you look at that and you're like, my goodness, 25, 30, 40, 50%. That, that will test what you love and what you trust in. Some men here who, I guess the last six months, you've been filled with more anxiety than you have in your entire life. And what recession has done is surfaced some things about your heart that are hard to realize are there. And recession reveals them. So the question then is, what does joyful generosity reveal specifically about Christ? How does joyful generosity reveal Jesus? I'll give you seven things this morning. The first is this. Joyful generosity reveals the beauty of God's grace. Look at verse 1 again. It tells us that God had given grace to the Macedonians. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So what Paul tells us is that this church in Macedonia was joyful and they were generous. And that God had given them the grace to be that. Their joy was clearly something that wasn't from themselves. Because if you're impoverished and then you give, that's just not normal. And so Paul says these Macedonians were filled with joy and they were filled with generosity. And the reason that they were filled with joy and generosity was because the grace of God was upon them. So what joyful generosity does is it reveals the beauty of God's grace. It means that people could look at the Macedonians and say, what's going on inside of you people? You're not normal. That's not how most people respond. And the answer is, oh, it must be that something else is empowering you. Yes, God's grace. So, here's a question. How do you get God's grace? How do you, how do you get grace like that? Well, if you know your Bibles, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5 tell us that God resists the who? Proud. But gives grace to the humble. Right. One of my favorite moves in football is the stiff arm. Love that. Running back, running down the road, road, the field. <laughs> And a linebacker comes at him. They got all the players right right now. I'm okay. 
Jermaine, okay. So Jermaine's running down the field, linebacker coming up, and just as that linebacker puts out his arms, that long arm of that running back goes boom like that, like the Heisman, puts it out, and that linebacker gets his head snapped like that, falls to the ground. I mean, I love that. In fact, when I very rarely play football, because I have a little longer arms, I love that, because, you know, I can stick, or my kids are swinging at me, you know, like this when we're playing, I can stick my hand out like this, you know. So I, I love that. And, and here's what this text says. God does that to the proud people. You're running along, and God goes, boom, stiff arm. He resists, and some of you, oh, that's what happened to me, right? God, God gave you the Heisman, right? He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the whom? Humble. So if you want grace, you've got to be humble. And that's why I was so alarmed, and am so alarmed, because I don't hear a lot of humility coming out of our country right now. I trembled the other night. This isn't the only one who said something like this, but Bobby Jindal, the governor of Louisiana, said this in a speech, and I just, I got a little nervous. Quote, as a child, I remember going to the grocery store with my dad. Growing up in India, he had seen extreme poverty. As we walked through the aisles in an American grocery store, looking at the endless variety on the shelves, he would tell me, Bobby, Americans can do anything. I still believe that, he said, even to this day. Americans can do anything. When we pull together, there is no challenge we can't overcome. And I went, oh no. It's 233 years of doing that. On a worldwide global scale, that's a little blip on a radar. I wonder, what does God think about people who say, we can do anything? That didn't work so well at Babel, did it? There's a part of me that just was like, oh man. I wondered in my heart, what would happen if some politician or some sort of leader would put a, if they could put aside their hubris and instead could say something like this. This economic downturn has shown a bright light on our greed, our covetousness, and our materialism. It has reminded us about the fragility of economic systems, the frailty of human effort, and the false hope of financial security. This economic downturn is a time for us to hear again the words of Second Chronicles 7, 13, and 14. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. No rain, the locusts, pestilence, you could translate that 21st century. It's no different. A recession is a time for us to joyfully declare, we need God's help. We need His grace. It's a time for us to take a careful look inside of our own hearts and realize that some of the challenges and the problems that we have culturally are because of the inherent God of our day, which is consumerism and materialism. We've overspent We've over-leveraged to feed the lust of our hearts and now reaping part of the benefit. We say, we can do anything. Maybe it's time for us to say we have done way too much. It is time for us to repent and say, we need your grace. Not anybody talking like that. Maybe you should. Maybe we should. To say, a recession in joyful generosity, can actually reveal the beauty of God's grace. And say, more than anything else, what we need is God. 
Number two, joyful generosity reveals our commitment to the Lordship of Christ. Look at verse 5. I love this verse. It says, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Notice that. The Macedonians' giving followed their commitment to the Lordship of Christ. That's always what happens with giving. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So, mark it down. Their their generosity was not the foundation. It was the fruit. The fruit of what? It was the fruit of their commitment to the supremacy of Jesus. It was their commitment to the Lordship of Christ. And the Lordship of Christ then expressed itself in joyful generosity. So seasons of recession present an opportunity for us to prove that we really believe that Jesus is Lord. It's for us to say, my heart isn't wrapped up in this stuff. It is instead wrapped up in Christ. It is for us to look in recession and see that our over-leveraged environment may have been caused because of a commitment to the lordship of stuff instead of a lordship of Christ. The Bible talks about this kind of stuff all over the place. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For, for the Gentiles seek after these things. He, he, he says, look, this is, the, this is the way the Gentiles live. And so there's a call in the midst of this season for us to be different than people who don't know what we know about heaven and hell and the gospel and the glory of Christ and, and what it means for God to give us grace. He said, these are the things that the Gentiles seek, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, a recession provides a unique opportunity for us to put into practice our commitment to seek first the kingdom of God and to say we treasure Christ above everything, including money. A recession allows the differences between those who love the Lordship of Christ and those who don't to be seen. It calls believers in Jesus to not fear, but instead to put their trust in God, knowing that He knows what we need. So you know what a recession does? It reminds us that we're not in control. When I was in college, I heard about globalization. It's kind of new back in the, 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 the 90s. And now we're seeing globalization from an economic standpoint. And that globalization was supposed to be the answer. Lots of trade around the world. And what we didn't really realize is it also meant that one problems go across the globe now. And it reminds us that God is in control, not us. I heard on NPR news this week that, you know, it wasn't until the 1920s that there was even something called consumer credit. Henry Ford wouldn't even allow you to buy a Model T on credit. You always had to pay cash. And when General Motors developed GMAC in order to provide credit, it was a whole, it was a new, it was revolutionized consumerism and spending. And it put GM at the front of, of, of the table, so to speak, with Ford. Now they had a product, plus they had financing, and Henry Ford was, said, we have to go along, and he wouldn't at first. He said, no, we can put it on layaway, but he wouldn't do consumer credit because he thought it was bad for families and for America. So the season that we're in, although has may have felt to people like me like we've always been here, it's not always been the way that people have lived. And the Lordship of Christ has a lot to do with what is presently happening in our culture. 
A recession reminds us God is in control. Third, joyful generosity reveals a God-centered eagerness to be involved. Look at verse 3. It's amazing to hear the following statement from Paul. He says this about these impoverished people. For they gave according to their means. So people who had more could give more. People who had less, they gave less because they gave according to their means. So he's not just talking about everyone giving the same thing. But then he says this, and as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, and then look at their emotions. Verse 4, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So here's this group of people. They were literally begging Paul for the opportunity to give to the Jerusalem saints. Well, why are they giving that way? Well, because their joy in God was so great, the grace that God had given them was so significant that they couldn't wait to be involved. They saw meeting the needs of others as part and parcel of their commitment to the Lordship of Christ and didn't matter if they were impoverished. They wanted to be part of God's activity in other people's lives. They thought differently about generosity than other people in their culture. And by the way, this is the way the church has always acted. Listen to Acts 2, 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all. Pause. It means that when someone had a need, they saw their resources as the vehicle to meet the needs of people. It doesn't mean that they sold absolutely everything and had everything in one big pot. I don't think that's what was intended here. Instead, what it means is that somebody had, had need. They saw someone in the church. They saw they had the stuff, so they gave them the stuff, or they sold what they had to meet the needs. They saw their resources as the conduit to meet other people's needs. And then, notice that it says, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So when they got their stuff, they saw that it was an opportunity I received so that I can give. Glad and generous heart. Lord, thank you, and here I'm going to be generous. Verse 47, praising God, and notice this, having favor with all the people. Jerusalem must have known about their generosity must have known about their graciousness and the way in which they were joyfully generous and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Listen, there is something that is irresistible about a church whose influence is based on joyful generosity. And when when the the darkness comes and recession happens and difficulties comes, it is an opportunity for the light of the gospel to shine clearly. The problem is is to be joyfully generous in the midst of a downturn of an economy is not how we are naturally wired. And that's why it presents a unique opportunity to put away fear and self-focus and the tendency to hoard and this idea of protect, protect, protect in order for us to reveal Christ in fresh and new ways. To be the one person in your office that, yes, there's bad news, but you've got joy that transcends the job. For you to have the joy of the Lord be your strength. For you to see the needs of other people as the opportunity for you to be able to meet those needs. So let me give you some ideas and some suggestions. First, I want to encourage you to develop a list of people who you know right now who are looking for work and, and begin to pray for them. Ask the Lord to give them a job. But do more than that. Ask them how they're doing. Use the resources of connections that you have and network and try and help that person. Get into their lives. Invite them this afternoon. Tonight we're going to have a fresh encounter prayer service. The focal point of that prayer service is going to be on the economic issues 
And specifically for people who are looking for work or are in the middle of financial difficulties. We're going to pray about that. Today, this afternoon, get on the phone, call a friend and say, hey, would you come to my church? We're going to pray specifically about the very issues that are in your life. Come, let's go and just seek the Lord together. That's what the church is supposed to do. You got a need, come to church, let's pray. Here's another thing. A a recession and joyful generosity could be a great motivator for you to work on your family budget. Maybe actually to develop a family budget, to kind of stop the problem, and to be able to free up additional resources so that you can meet the needs of other people. It could be that our overspending is actually creating an inability or a knee-jerk reaction to giving so that we see someone's need and we don't feel like we can even help because we're so in the hole. So part of the problem may be that we're not living within our means. And I want to encourage you, develop a family budget and on top of what you already give, develop a little line item called benevolence. And that little line item in your budget is solely there so that you can give it away every month to someone who has need. So every month you've got a little amount in your budget. It may be for you because you're in financial difficulty. It's just a few bucks. Maybe it's no more than 5 to $10, but it's something that every month you're looking, where are we going to give this money away? And you're looking for it for 30 days. That's a change of how we see and think about our money. Or once a month we have a benevolence offering. We take it during our time around the Lord's table. And we use those funds to meet the financial needs of people in our church. A need comes in. And we are able to meet that because of your giving. And I want you to make this fund a a thoughtful priority in your giving. At the same time, the church can't meet all the needs. And so therefore, I want you to look around you and realize that if someone's in need, it's your responsibility to meet that need. Here's another suggestion. Monday morning, we're starting a small group. Really kind of restarting it. It's called Jump Start. It's for men who are currently unemployed. Starts at 7.30, goes to 8.30. It's led by men who've gone through an unemployment situation. Apparently some guys did this last summer and they met together, they prayed together, they read scripture together, encouragement, networking, and accountability. It helps to have some group of men that you're meeting with first thing Monday morning to say, okay, a new week, let's pray and let's go after it. And that group starts 7.30 Monday. The information is on the website and I'd love for you to come, those of you men who are without work, or if you have a friend that you put your arm around and say, hey, let's go, come on, let's go. Small groups, there's a study guide that Gary Meeks has put together. I'm going to ask you for one week or next week to put aside your good studies that you're already doing and take one week and just talk about what can we do to make this practical in our lives. What can we do to think about this and really do something about it? And then finally, there's a volunteer registration form on the website. If you just are like, well, I don't really know what I can do. I've got time. I've got some margin, so maybe I can at least donate my time and help, and we could use your help and some mentoring or just being a friend, maybe some other sort of resource, some network that you can help us with. There's a registration form on there just to identify yourself, hey, as a resource person, if you need somebody in this area, I'm available. The point here is this, that God wants to use us to be a part of the solution in people's lives, and that happens at multiple levels. But our tendency is to only think about ourselves. And what a recession does is it reminds us that our tendency is to be internal focused and it calls us to be joyfully generous so that we can say much about who Christ is. And we don't think naturally that way. We don't. So you came to church this morning and you're like, what's up with the M&Ms? Right? So how many of you received M&Ms when you came to church this morning? Let me see your hands. Good. Nice and high. Raise them nice and high so I can see you. Okay, good. 
How many of you received M&Ms from somebody else? Let me see your hands. Okay, good. How many of you received no M&Ms? Raise your hands. I am so sorry. (laughs) Now now again, how many of you received M&Ms? Let me see your hands. Okay, just so you know, everyone who didn't receive them, we passed out enough M&Ms for everybody in the auditorium to receive at least one. But somebody didn't share. So who got M&Ms again? Let me see your hands. How many M&Ms did you get? Too many. Too many? Did you share any? No. No, that's what I said. Did you get any M&Ms? No, sir. You did? How, did you share any? How many? Oh, she had three, but she offered them, but nobody wanted them. Okay, I guess we had had the cooties things going. Who else had M&Ms? Did you share any? One each. Very good. Okay. So there was enough M&Ms to go around the whole room, and yet some of you didn't get any. That's just really sad, isn't it? Doesn't it make you angry with the people who had M&Ms? So, okay, who, who didn't get any M&Ms? No M&Ms. All right, Jermaine, come here a minute. So you didn't get any. Do you like M&Ms? I sure do. Do you? All right. Do you like M&Ms? All right. Does your wife like M&Ms? She does. Would, would you share M&Ms if you got some? I would. Yes? She's acting right. Is she? Okay, good. All right. So um, I'm just... I'm just really sorry that nobody shared M&Ms with you. I think my friend Bob ate them all. Damn. Yeah. These are really good. So let's let's pay for Jermaine. Lord, we um <laughs> Lord, we, we 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 pray for Jermaine. He's got a lot of needs with his M&Ms. And we're just praying that you'd like let one of those rich M&M people just really bless him with all the M&Ms that he'd ever need. We're really we feel terrible that no one shared with him, and we just pray you'd help him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Amen. Have a seat. Amen. We do that all the time. Lord, I pray you'd help my brother and meet his need with M&M's when I got half a bag. Lord, I pray you'd meet him by somebody other's M&M's, not mine. And what we fail to realize is that God has given us the resources to be able to meet the needs of people around us, but we don't see that we're part of the solution. And what we do is we diminish the value and the beauty of Christ-exalting generosity. How do you reveal Christ in a recession? You reveal Him by joyfully Pursuing Christ-likeness by saying, I can help, even if it's a little. The next way is it reveals the value of righteousness. You might say, okay, so what, what would motivate somebody to give this way? Look at chapter 9 and verse 7. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So don't you go out of here today and go, oh, now i got to give. 
For God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. Notice that little phrase, increase the harvest of your righteousness. So, what do believers in Jesus love more than their money? They love the righteousness that is created by their generosity. They know that giving is not a waste. See, one of the things that the enemy will tell you, or your wicked heart will say in your soul, is I'm just giving this money, it's just going away. Just giving it. It's just gone. It's not here anymore. And you didn't give it, you invested it. And believers in Christ see the value of a harvest of righteousness. They love righteousness more than they love their stuff. And that's why they can give. And that's why they're the one group of people that should give. Because they understand the value of real righteousness. So the world could look at them and go, wow, apparently you don't value money. Right, I value righteousness. That's why. Recession reveals if we really value righteousness. Fifth, look at verse 8, chapter 9. This is, this is a really important verse. This, this needs to be underlined in your Bible because some of you... You're, you're conservative, which is great, and, and the minute that you start giving, it creates this, well, this, this, this giving thing is going to create need in my life. So what do I do? I'm f- afraid about that. I'm scared about that. Verse 8, it's beautiful. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see the principle there? It's so important. It says this. There's three promises. It says that God possesses all grace. God has all, He has a treasure trove of grace. He can give me, secondly, what I need in all things at all times. So you give, and God has the resources to give back to you. I don't usually like to tell you good illustrations about me. So let me tell you a half good one. There was a need that my wife wanted us to, to meet in someone's life. And I said, yeah, let's go ahead and do that right away. And so we, we met that need. And by the time I got back to my house after meeting that need, there was a check in my mailbox, $15 short of the exact amount that we had just given to somebody else. And what would have happened, friends, is if I had resisted her desire to give, I would have seen that check and missed the beauty of God's provision cycle. I saw that gift, that, that check, from my health insurance company nonetheless. And I was like, wow, that's a real miracle. There it is. <laughs> it's a real miracle. And there it is, a reimbursement check. I apparently overpaid a bill, and they sent it back. I had no idea. And here it is. And that little check told me a whole lot about God's grace and His ability to provide all sufficient things for all needs at all times for every good work. But there have been other times when my wife has said, what about this? And I've said, no, we, we can't do that. Because my stingy heart thinks, hmm. If we give, then it creates need. See, this verse is the death verse of that attitude. The beautiful thing about a recession is it kicks out our self-sufficient legs from underneath us, and it calls us to trust in God's grace. All right, two more. It reveals thanksgiving in others, 
and the glorification of God in others. Look at chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. For the ministry of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Here's what happens. When you give, you take American currency... You take money, by the way, that's backed by the United States government, okay? That's all that stands behind this bill. It means that the government says this is worth a dollar. And what you do is you take a governmental institution, a promissory note, and you give it to somebody else, and this then buys stuff. That's really smart, isn't it? You know that? This this buys stuff, and you give it to somebody else, and then this money then produces in them gratitude to God and glorification of God. So here's the cycle. I have money. I give it to somebody else. The result is they thank God and they glorify God. You know what that is? That's Christian money laundering. It's taking money, and it's producing a new currency. The new currency is thanksgiving. It's gratitude and glorification of God. And here's the thing. People who follow Jesus love the currency of gratitude and glorification of God more than bills backed by the United States government. That's what they love. That's what they treasure. And they love the fact that in giving, it produces a new currency of gratitude and glory. And then finally, the text says this, that joyful generosity reveals Christ as the ultimate gift. A recession is helpful in that it shows us that and the world what we really, truly value. And Paul concludes, nine, chapter 9, verse 15, he says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What he does, he comes full circle and points us back to Christ, that the poverty of the Macedonians and their generosity reminded them once again that it was Jesus who became poor and gave the ultimate joyful and generous gift his own life. And people who have been impacted by this inexpressible gift in the person of Christ, who see his joyful generosity in how he lives, are then overwhelmed with the opportunity to be like him, such that people who know Christ are compelled to be joyfully generous like he was. So that the world should know that we have an example in Christ that motivates us to be like him in how we treat each other And people in need. It's almost as though Paul could imagine somebody seeing a follower of Jesus so filled with joy and so filled with generosity, so different from the culture that they would ask, what is different about you? Why are you not panicking? Why are you so filled with joy? Why are you so happy? Haven't you seen the stock market? Why are you so joyful? Aren't you worried about your job? Why are you so much concerned about others than other people are? Why are you more inclined to give? And the answer is, it's because of Jesus. He's my trust. He's my hope. He's my supply. He's my treasure. It's Christ. His ultimate gift, inexpressible as it was, is the ultimate example for me and how I treat others. I've met Jesus and I can't help but be joyfully generous. So beloved, we need to reveal Christ in a recession by joyful, Jesus-centered generosity. This is an opportunity for us to look around and say, how can I make much of Christ and really declare my allegiance to Jesus and say, you are my everything, my treasure, my authority. Nothing compares to you. 
Father, I pray that you, in this moment, would unleash your grace upon us so that we could conquer fear and doubting. We could resist the tendency to take a message and just put it away. That we would hear what you're saying this very moment. To confess to you, Lord, you're my everything. For some here today, Lord, that means that in the midst of uncertainty at work, to say, Lord, I I trust you. For some with difficult finances, because of their own making, that today would say, Lord, you are my everything, but it's not been that way. And today is a defining point. I need to repent. My God has become stuff. Lord, I pray that today our collective hearts would say, yes, Lord, we want to be like you. And so we ask you, oh, Holy Spirit, to seal within our hearts what it is that you are saying in this moment.